Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And we have a really cool guest on today, Manuel Astruc. I hope I said his name right. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to bring Manuel on here in just a second. So stay with us. back let's bring manuel on manuel welcome to the show hey thanks i am so glad to be here i'm happy to have you here are you looking for the face the facebook thing to share i was with? i was i was almost there you well, go ahead i can go ahead and share it yeah we can wait we want to make sure all your friends and family know that you're on here so Let's share this thing out. And anybody watching right now, feel free to press the share button. Share this thing out. So, Manuel, I started this show about um, almost three years ago now. And I started it to give back to the world and, and help people get unstuck in life. And um, 2020 proved to be an interesting year for a lot of people. Um to get stuck and 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 so I'm excited to hear your story and if you're struggling with finding it don't even worry about it you can share it later too I'll so, share it later yeah yeah so Scott Ricard is on and Darlene we have some wonderful people joining us so Manuel why don't you start with telling everybody where you were born and raised Pamplona Spain Wow. Yeah. I think you're my first guest from Spain. Wow. In 330 some odd interviews. Wow. That's pretty cool. So is that where you were raised? Um, for five years, my, my family, uh, my parents were Spanish. They, they uh, were born and raised in Spain. Uh, the first five years of my life, I lived in Pamplona, uh, which is where they do the running of the bulls. It's up in the northern part by France. Uh, okay. And my father uh, was a MD PhD. He uh, mm. wow, uh, and he was mainly doing uh, at that point. You know, when I was young, doing research with the, the brain and studying um, brains in monkeys. And the the grant opportunities and the research opportunities were much greater in the United States. He had done a um, sabbatical in Walter Reed Hospital um, shortly after I was born. And then he was looking for a chance to come back. And then a position opened up in Richmond, Virginia. Mm. Uh, when I was five, he was hired. And the family, uh, so my father, my mom, and there were five siblings. My twin sister and I were the oldest and, and four others, three others, um, came over to, to Richmond. And wow. That, that's Vir where I grew up. Yeah. Richmond, Virginia. Exactly. Yeah. It's a nice town, actually. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. It was a nice place to grow up. Yeah. So, so your father was an MD and a PhD, a bit of an overachiever. <laughs> sort of. Uh, you know, the, the, 
reality is that back then, as he tells the story, as he used to tell the, the story, he has passed away. But um, when you got your MD uh, back in those days in Spain, before you could get a job, you basically had to wait for someone to, to like die and pass on their practice over to you. It was just mm. hard to get you know traction with just the MD. And he was always very interested in the research aspect of things. So his his thought was that he would do the research. It was a much quicker way to get a job and he wanted to get married and have a family. So needed to provide for the family. Wow. So he came over here and what, and you were five when you came to the United States, you said. Exactly. And, and so what, what, what was the purpose of coming to Richmond? Uh, so my father had gotten the, the position at the Medical College of Virginia okay. to do research there and to um, teach and, you know, all the things that, that go along yeah. with that. What was it like for you coming to America? I mean, was English a second language for you yet or? Yeah, so there was no English. We started so wow. um, in kindergarten. So my twin sister and I were taken into a, a small Catholic school and we'd obviously been together uh, for five years. Yeah. And we went into the school and I remember being just so nervous. I didn't know any English. I, you know, didn't know what to expect, but at least my sister was with me. And the first thing that happened as we walked into the school is they took my sister in one direction and they took me in another direction. I was totally not expecting that. It, it like freaked me out. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would at five years old. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. So, so, um, you started off in America feeling insecure, <laughs> rightfully so. So, so what, so where did things go from there? You, 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 were, I mean, what was it like for you growing up in Richmond as a, as an immigrant to America? What was that like? I, I don't remember it as being um, like there were certainly the first year I have memories of um, awkwardness in the in the kindergarten class and yeah. uh, my sister and I would find each other at recess and in the playground but pretty quickly we had um, acclimated we learned English and um, the the challenge initially when we were growing up is my parents wanted us to learn English. So inside the family, we would be encouraged to speak English. Um, then over the years, uh, that changed and we were encouraged to come back and, and like speak our native tongue <laughs> uh, so that we wouldn't lose Spanish. Uh, over the years, we really started speaking more and more English around the house, except with my mother. She was the one that uh, the entire family spoke Spanish too for, for as long as she was alive. Wow. So you still speak Spanish, I'm assuming. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So just a little, just a little. I can get around in Spanish. I can get around in Spanish. Wow. <laughs> well, that's better than me. Um, so, so you, um, and, and I, rem I took two years of Spanish in high school and I don't, I, the only thing I remember is there's no word for Ken in Spanish. So I had to pick a, like you had to pick a Spanish name. So I picked, I picked Jose. <laughs> I don't even know why, but, but, um, 
so so you grew up in and and you ended up graduating high school in Richmond, is that correct? Exactly. And, and then you went on to college. And so the the family was very much um, indoctrinated with the idea that we had to go to college, um, be professionals, and it, it was by default. There, there wasn't a lot of discussion around, you know, the the the, the various um, career paths that someone could potentially take. Yeah. I was good at math. I was good at school. I was good in science, and people would say you'd make a good doctor, and I was. Sign me up. Um, like by default, it seemed like a reasonable idea, and you could check a box and, and not have to think too much further. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go pre med, and I'll do med school and become a doctor. And did you? And I did. I did. So an MD. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, I see. I thought I knew everything about you. I did yeah. not know that. So did you go on to practice medicine then? Oh, no, yeah. So I still practice medicine. So the, um, so the the trajectory then is you do four years of college. You do four years of med school. At the end of that, you have an MD, but like no practical skills to, to, to do anything else really. Um, so then you specialize. You do a specialty in, in something, you know, pediatrics, uh, surgery. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, for me, I ended up, deciding to go into psychiatry. Uh, and it was not what I would have guessed I would have gone into it. It was nowhere really on my radar. But I discovered that there were a couple of things. Um, number one is that I really like to hang out with people and get to know them. Uh, in the, the days that I was in med school, we would have rotations in the hospital. And when the work was done, we had you know done everything that had been asked of us in terms of you know, taking care of patients and ordering blood work and, and you know, getting information and studying and whatnot. Um, I like to find patients who didn't have family members visiting. They were lonely and I would sit with them and I would like ask them like, where are you from? What'd you do? Like just what you're doing now. Um, yeah. And, and um, it was endlessly interesting and fascinating. And I loved um, the, the behavioral sciences, the, the psychiatry rotation that I did was like, you know, second to none. It was, it was just a great experience. The, um, the hard part of uh, the mindset shift that I had to make was I went into medicine with an assumption that I would be doing something that would be like, you know, life-saving. There would be life-saving procedures. We would thump on chest. We would give, you know, intravenous medications to save someone's life in the emergency room. Yeah. And when um, I went into psychiatry, there was a little bit of a loss of that. But, you know, the, the, the reality is, you know, after years now of working in psychiatry, um, no, I don't believe it to be true at all that we don't do life-saving work. And it's part of my mission, actually. You know, one of the reasons that I'm doing interviews and podcasts is, is really because I have a passion for getting the word out um, about mental health and trauma and addiction. Um, like, I want to elevate that conversation. I want to decrease the stigma. And, and I want to get a message out to the world. There's hope. You're not alone and, you know, change is possible. So those three things, if we embed that in people's heads, yeah. it can save your life. And if someone's struggling around you, those are three easy things to remember to help someone out and to offer support and guidance. 
you know, I've I've been um, I'm known as the king of live streaming. I've done over three thousand live streams, and um, I'll never forget when I in 2014 when I started. I, I one night I just decided to to be transparent on a live stream and tell everybody that I was in recovery. And, and it, it, it actually turned into one of my most popular live streams. Like it got so many viewers and, and I, I remember thinking, well, wait a minute, I can, I, I don't have anything to hide. What, why, why wouldn't I, you know, and, and I've had so many people reach out as a result and say, you know, Hey, I've struggled with alcohol too. And, and you've encouraged me to, you know, seek help. And I think that it's a beautiful thing to put, put the message out there. I I've, I I've been judged, but I don't, I, they're going to judge me anyway. So, right. So I, I love the fact that you want to get that message out there because I think it's incredibly important that people know that hope is available. Yeah. That there is hope. And one of the things, so this is where I'll take off my, my Dr. Astro hat. Like I'll just take that off. I'm going to put on my coaching hat. Cause that's, that's, you know, my, my second career at this point yeah. is, is coaching. Um, when I'm in my doctor mode, the, the professional code of ethics is we don't self-disclose. And there's very, very good reasons for that. Um, but as a coach, I think it's important to be able to share life experiences. Yeah. And what I bring to the table, you know, I've got over 20 years working as a psychiatrist. Uh, I've worked uh, as a medical director of inpatient units. I've had over 20 years and continue to work at Saratoga County uh, Alcohol and Substance Abuse as the medical director there. Um, wow. So I've got my, my medical experience and my knowledge of, of humans with my psychiatry and, and illnesses. Um, I'm an entrepreneur in, in coaching, but, but just like you and just like so many people, I've also had my problems with uh, addiction. Uh, I uh, haven't had a drink in over 20 years. I have had problems with depression. And my life really took a turn 12 years ago when I was suffering from just like terrible burnout. You know, I, I, um, I'm, I'm curious about one thing and that is, are, so are you an MD and a PhD also? No, no. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I wasn't under, I only did the MD part. Uh, so, um, I'm a medical doctor, uh, with a specialty in psychiatry. I did not, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize. I thought that psychiatrists were all PhDs. I did not realize that that's really yes. Yeah, so that's common. That's a common. So the the um, lay of the land with within mental health. Um, yeah. You know, so the the uh, psychiatrist and the psychologist. So the psychologists are doctors through the the PhD program. Yeah. Um, and then the the psychiatrists come into it from the the medical side of things, yeah. um, and just kind of in generalities, what what the field has evolved into is that you know the psychiatrists are mainly the ones who are doing medication management and, and less of the therapy, um, which is one of the reasons that I love coaching. Um, and the um, therapists, the psychologists, are doing more of the the psychotherapy. 
I ha- <laughs> I used to sell for a bathroom remodeling company years ago. And and I remember I went on this sales call and it was a psychiatrist. And 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 I'm 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 standing in his bathroom and I and I gave him the price and he goes, "Okay, now give me your best price." And I said, "I just did." And he said, "No, you didn't." I said, "Yes, I d- yes I did." And he goes, "You're lying." I said, "I don't I'm not lying and I don't appreciate you calling me a liar." <laughs> And he said, it's okay. Everybody lies. We have to. It's a built-in mechanism. Otherwise, you'd go stark raving mad if you told yourself the truth about everything. I'm like, dude, stop analyzing me now. Like, what is, but, you know, so, so I find the entire field of, of psychiatry, I, I, obviously being in recovery myself, I've always been, um, I've always loved the, the, how the mind works, the the human mind. I, I love love studying that. So, so do you get into any of the um, like quantum fields? Do you do any of any of that stuff in in your in your journey? So, so help me understand the the quantum fields. Um, uh, are you referencing things like the law of attraction, or what? What is it that that you're Dr. Um, Dr. Joe Dispenza. He, he, you know who Joe is. And, Mm -hmm. and then I have a a guy, Dr. Jeffrey Fannin. He traveled the world with Dr. Dispenza. He's a friend of mine and he's been on the show. And, and I think that's more PhD stuff, but um, you know, he talks a lot about the quantum fields and quantum, quantum um, uh, physics. And I don't know if that's related to, to what you, you do or not. So not exactly the, um, you know, so within the field of psychiatry, the um, profession and in medicine in general, you know, it, it's very much kind of quote unquote evidence-based. Um, yeah. So, so we got to have the science, we got to point to the science and, you know, in, in some ways, that's very good. You don't want your medical doctor to be a cowboy, like, you know, let's try this. Um, yeah. You know, you, you want some, you know, kind of thoughtful evidence approaches to it. You know, on, on the other hand, there's uh, alternative ways of looking at the world in, in terms of the mind, body, and spirit um, yeah. that we close ourselves off to uh, as a field because it's much harder to, to study those things. Um, sure. So within the, the my, my field, I stay within, you know, the, the psychiatric professional code and, and the standards of care. My personal life, you know, I, I think that the world is a place full of wonder and awe. And I think that we have not scratched the surface of really kind of completely understanding it. And I am completely open to, to learning and to changing my points of view and to just kind of have that beginner's mind. Um, it's one of the things I love, really. It, it's to, to have my mind changed and to, to learn. Um, you know, that that's one of the keys for me for happiness. Yeah. So when you, you, so you went through, you got your MD, where did you immediately open your own practice? Did you work somewhere? What, how did, how did things flow from there for you? As I was finishing my residency, I, I uh, had gone to medical school and did my residency in Richmond, Virginia at the medical college of Virginia. 
Okay. And I, I had a lot of opportunities. I was fortunate to, to have a lot of things I could pick from. So there were practices in Richmond that uh, were available to me. The uh, Department of Psychiatry at the Medical College um, had shown an interest in, in hiring me. One, one of the traps I ended up in, and, and like it, it has been uh, a lesson that I've had to learn and, and unlearn and relearn. In medical school, I got engaged and I uh, got married. And when I went into my residency, I, I went in, married and starting a family. And as a resident, you're not making that much money. Uh, you, you make some, uh, but all my friends and my family who were not in medical school had started to advance their lives. They were doing things like buying houses. Um, and yeah. we were in an apartment. And within a couple of years of, of working as a resident, you get your medical license. So you don't just have the MD. Now you have a license so you can actually practice medicine. So I started to do a lot of moonlighting. There were state hospitals uh, within an hour of Richmond, Virginia. And so I would drive south to Petersburg, Virginia, and I would drive west to Williamsburg, Virginia. And there were two state hospitals that were always looking for overnight coverage for their large wards. And I started to, to work a lot of hours, um, like a lot of hours. Uh, and, and, you know, my, my wife at the time and I were able to buy a house and, you know, kind of keep up with the Joneses um, at the expense of sleep and other things. Uh, and I was having a blast. It was fun. I was learning a lot. Uh, but when I finished my residency, I was going to have to take a pay cut and like, to, to, to do some other uh, opportunities. So I was really kind of looking to, to work less and, and ideally make more. Um, and uh, my wife and I, we at the time, we, we made a decision that we were going to take an opportunity uh, to come up to New York. Mm. And I uh, accepted a position working at an inpatient uh, hospital setting uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, and my thought process was that I really wanted to see how medicine and psychiatry were, was practiced in other parts of the United States. Um, a lot of the practices within Richmond, the, the uh, psychiatrists that were working there, many of them had graduated and had been influenced by, you know, the Medical College of Virginia, which was a great education. But I thought, you know, if there's an opportunity to learn how other people have been trained and think and, you know, what they do, it'd be nice to, to move somewhere else. And I left with a, a plan, um, kind of a, a, a framework for how I envision the next couple of years going. Um, I wanted to work on an inpatient setting because I wanted to get really good at my craft. And being uh, on an inpatient setting is where people come in in the most dire need of help and assistance. This is where people are suicidal. There's people who are having um, you know, manic episodes and psychotic episodes. But that's really the, the area where I thought I could learn the most the fastest. And then I thought I would start a private practice, you know, maybe in five years or so. Um, it took longer than five years, but I eventually did that. And then I said, you know, down the road, I'd really like to do something else. I'm not sure what that's going to be, but, you know, I just kind of penciled in without really putting much thought into, like, what that would be. Um, 
but the, the, there was the, the three phases that I kind of thought about uh, in general when I started my practice. So I left my residency, like that was a long story. <laughs> I, I left my residency um, to move to Poughkeepsie and start working on an inpatient unit there. And when is this like the um, like were you called to the ER for episodic patients that were? I mean, was it that kind of situation? Like, oh God, let's get our resident psychiatrist down here. No, so I, I mean, in in residency, that's what we did. We we covered the ER and the inpatient wow. units, and you know, we were covering everything. Um, uh, once I graduated, there was a team in place. So when I was on call, uh, after I had graduated and now had a employed position as a psychiatrist, there would be a team that would do evaluations in the emergency room for you. Um, occasionally you might be called in to, to see someone that, that was a little bit more complex than, than and you needed to lay eyes on them. But by and large, you know, you would take call every, you know, five to seven nights, you would, uh, take call over the phone. Um, occasionally having to go into the hospital, uh, but, but that wasn't the norm, mainly was from home. You may not get much sleep, but maybe call all night long, but um, you didn't have to go in anymore. Right, right. So <clears throat> so you moved to, what's it called, Poughkeepsie? Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie, New York. Yeah. I've heard of it, I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it sounds like you were still fairly young and newly married, like 30-ish maybe? Yeah, so I think I was um, 31, 32, something like that around that time. Yeah, and we, uh, we were um, recently married. I had a son who um, was four and turned five shortly after, you know, I had graduated. Um, yeah. Wow. So um, how, So where did you said that you had a five-year plan to start your own practice? Um, it took five and a half years? It took longer than that. I mean, the, the, you know, life life has a way of kind of you know throwing you curveballs, and you know you're ready for them or you're not. And I wasn't ready for all the curveballs that came my way. Um, you know, my my decision making. You know, so even though I'm the one helping people and helping them with life and life choices and judgment and and stuff like that, you know, um, you can't cut your own hair. Uh, and and I had really uh, had problems with alcohol. Um, you know, going back to, to the first time I drank, right? And then in college and med school and, you know, newly married. And um, I, I actually had a period of time in uh, my medical school where uh, I was overextended and had to take a year off. And I attributed it, you know, when I had to explain myself to the, the various um, people at school. This is a story I've never told, by the way, Ken. Um, but the, um, I, I had to take a year off and I was working as a waiter. I was, um, partying and I was trying to go to med school and like all three things couldn't fit. Um, and, and med school was suffering. So, um, I talked to, to the administration of the school, said that I have a drinking problem. I need to stop drinking and get myself straightened out. Wow. And I, I stopped drinking for some years. It was not in my mind, you know, at that point, like anyone who's, who's you know, been in recovery, you either like get that, um, 
idea that you've got a problem embedded or there's reservations, right? So I had a lot of reservations whether this was the problem or not. This was an excuse, right? You know, I, I messed I, up. I love I love yeah. the transparency, Manuel. Yeah. It's yeah. It, you're you're a psychiatrist. You're right. studying it, and yeah. and yet you're still in denial. So it's yeah. it's not it's it's anybody's susceptible to it. Anybody. So at yeah. that point, I was I was just a medical student, but you know, and I yeah. had an excuse. I messed up because I think I've been you know drinking, and you know the truth was I was just making bad decisions. And and you know when you have an alcohol problem, um, you know. Part of it is losing control and making bad choices. Like, you know, I should be studying, but I'm going to have one beer. And guess what? One turns into five. Um, but I took a year off and I did stop drinking. And I stopped drinking um, until I finished my residency. So that was about five years. But in my mind, uh, the, the drinking was not a problem. I had just been done. Um, I, I had gotten overextended. I wasn't focusing enough. Uh, when I finished my residency, I said, I think I can drink safely now. And, and I, I, um, I did drink, but not safely. It, it, it you know, kind of reared its head again. Yeah. And um, you know, within a couple of years of uh, having started to, to work in Poughkeepsie, you know, the, the drinking was becoming a problem again. I've been fortunate it never affected me professionally. Um, but it certainly caused problems in my judgment and in my family. Um, I, I got divorced um, uh, and uh, ended up moving from Poughkeepsie, uh, where I was working inpatient, to Saratoga, which was a couple of hours away, Saratoga Springs, New York, where I took another position working inpatient. Um, and I worked inpatient there for probably uh, five years, five, six years. So all told, you know, it was closer to seven to eight years of inpatient that I ended up doing. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, I, I mean, you're, you're taking me back to 20 years ago when I was in a, in a hospital <laughs> for, for a 28 day treatment. And it was, um, I mean, you know, there were psychiatrists involved in, in, in the, uh, it was it was pretty in, insane, and and to see some of the people, and I'm sure you've seen this. I mean, I I had a, a friend that I made in there that was the 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 um, the director of of for a hospital. He was the director of of the recovery department, whatever it was called yeah. in this hospital, a big giant hospital, very well known, and and he ended up getting kicked out of treatment <laughs> for like they kicked him out like it, because the denial is so strong and and mm -hmm. and and it seems like i've seen a, a lot of people and i'm sure you have that the more educated they are um sometimes it's even more difficult to get them to admit that hey there's there's an issue here and you know, yeah. I experienced that myself personally. I went through yeah. that denial. So you can justify and rationalize just about anything, right? So oh. yeah, when I finally hit a bottom with the drinking, um, you know, twenty-one years ago, um, the uh, realization in, in my my second wife, you know, sat me down. She she said, "Look, um, you've got to stop drinking, or you got to leave." And um, 
I looked at her like I had many times and said, look, it's not the drinking, you know, I'm stressed out, the job, the this, the that. And I, we, we'd gone through this before and I could usually just kind of, and, and this time she just wouldn't look at me and she just, you know, said two or three times, you got to stop drinking or you got to leave. So I got mad, right? Said, okay, I'll stop drinking. Like no big deal. If you think it's a big deal, I'll stop drinking. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I stopped drinking for like two days. Um, and then I snuck a beer and I was like so proud of myself. Like I stopped for two days and, and I'm gonna just like sneak a beer. And, and somewhere in the middle of that beer, like, you know, my, my, my higher power like kicked me in the head and said, you are crazy. Like, like <laughs> you just said that you don't have a problem and that you're going to stop and you're sneaking a beer and you're proud of yourself. Like, what is wrong with you? And, and that was um, really uh, 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 not because I was smart, but, but something inside me said I was delusional right? <laughs> to, to um, have that level of an ability to justify and rationalize. And that scared me. That That's the, the first time. I mean, I had problems where I'm going to stop and then I didn't stop. I'm not going to drink today and I drank today. But that moment um, just absolutely terrified me because I said I'm not, not in control uh, at all of what my brain is thinking uh, and what it's doing. And, and this is a big problem. And, and that's when I really like embraced recovery and started going to, to the meetings. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I can remember um, my ex, my ex could, and we lived in a big house and she could be in bed asleep and hear a beer can open <laughs> and co come down the stairs. What do you do? But so I, I I'm sitting here thinking like, I remember I would take a can of beer. I would cover it with a towel and just it'd take me five minutes to open the thing. So she wouldn't hear it. Like just the, and, and that's what people don't understand the insidiousness of the disease, the, the insanity of it. And, and I get it, man. I totally, I can, Oh my gosh, I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, like my ex saying the same thing to me, and I'm going, "You're the reason I drink so much." You know? <laughs> like, yeah, it's crazy, man. So, well, congratulations on on um, your recovery. That's that's amazing. And and um, so so you you got into um, you finally surrendered is what I what I refer to it as. Yeah. Um, and and you got into recovery and so how did things go from that point forward for you i um embraced the recovery um you know i i initially was uh, too embarrassed and scared to go to aa meetings locally uh, yeah. <laughs> so i was driving you know i'm in saratoga albany is about 30 miles um, south, I would go down to Albany to go to meetings there three, five times a week. Uh, and, and there was construction going on. It would take, you know, I already had long days, but I was going and coming back. Um, I started individual psychotherapy. I started group psychotherapy in a, in a recovery um, group. And I remember one day in group saying, you know, I, I can't do this driving anymore. It's just there's there's no time for for anything else but work and driving and meetings. And I'm not going to really give up my meetings. Um, but I'm worried about going to meetings here locally because 
like a large percentage of patients that I was treating were in recovery. And yeah. I was like uh, just absolutely scared to, to show my face. Uh, yeah. My anonymity and what are they going to think and, you know, all this ego stuff, right? Um, yeah. And one of the members in the group, you know, I'll never forget, he said, you know, I, I think this is where you got to put all your chips into the middle of the table and say, do you trust the process or do you not trust the process? Um, I said, I, I don't have any choice but to trust the process because my way is not working. Right. Um, and I, I went to my first AA meeting locally, um, and it was like the, the hardest, you know, 50 yards to walk from my car yeah. into the door. I was ready to, like, say, you know, forget recovery. I'm going to go to Florida and just drink. Um, like, my, my, I, I was just petrified. Could barely get my head in the door. Um, but I was met with love and compassion and understanding and zero judgment. Uh, glad you're here, Doc. It's all good. Um, and, and, you know, as far as I know, no one ever, ever broke anonymity. And uh, it was just, a, a, you know, amazing experience. Yeah, I, it, it's magical. I, it it yeah. truly is. I, I, I did. I did the, I was the CEO of a company, had the big house, two Mercedes, had, I, and I went to my first AA meeting. I'll never forget. I drove like 30, 40 miles out of town because mm. God forbid anybody see me walking into, I, mm. I can, God, I can so relate to that. And I sat down right next to a doctor that I knew. And I'm like, dude, what are you, what are you doing here? And he goes, oh, I've been sitting here waiting on you to get here. <laughs> so, so it's funny. funny that we are so like the, the denial is insane so I, i'm yeah. yeah one of the um uh the first aa meeting that i i went to uh there was another psychiatrist at that meeting and um I didn't know him and he didn't really know me and I did a very brief introduction when when i walked in and as the meeting uh, finished, he came up to me and he said, you know, nice to meet you. Glad you're here. And uh, he said, you don't have to be alone anymore. And, and that's part of, you know, so there's little pearls out there that, that I've kind of consolidated. But, but I know how much that meant to me to, to hear that at that moment. Um, it, it was just, uh, you know, a message from God. It's, it's amazing, man. It's amazing. So along, along the way, I'm always curious to know, um, you know, people have, I truly believe that people are, were born with a purpose. Everybody is. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of, I, I can remember as a kid being told, stop, stop dreaming so much. That's a pipeline dream. Get down out of the clouds and into reality. And, and, and so I think unintentionally, maybe intentionally, I don't know, but unintentionally the adults around us as children have a tendency of, of squashing our, our dreams. And, and, um, and then people get stuck. They don't ever pursue what their real purpose is in life. And, 
Um, what what do you think that is? Is it fear? I, that's the number one answer people give me is they think that fear holds people back. But what do you think it is? I think it's, you know, fear. But the, the way that I look at it is that there's um, there's a path that others before us have blazed. And, and that well-worn path um, promises safety and security. Like mm. follow this path, do the following things, and and you're going to be okay. And what we're not given permission to do is is to blaze our own trails. And I imagine if you look back at um, you know seventy thousand years ago, hunter gatherers, you know you followed the the path. This is how we you know catch mastodons or whatever, right? This is where they are. This is the path we follow. This is how we do it. Um, and every once in a while, there's got to be some innovation that, that happens. Someone says, I'm not going to follow your path. I'm not going to follow the well-worn path. Right. And the, the permission to do that. So, you know, part of like my journey, what I like to talk about now and, and, and talk about with, with um, folks like you and, and people listening yeah. is, you know, the, the pathways to, to happiness. And so I said, learning and growing, we're never finished products. That's one of my jams for happiness. Another of the, of the pillars for happiness is you got to blaze your own trail. Um, you know, life by default is what most of us have had access to. And then life by comparison, like what do other successful people do? How do they grow? What do they want? What do they acquire? Like what's the size of their house, their bank account? Yeah. Um, but at some point, having that internal compass that tells you, you know, this is who I am and this is what I want and this is what I'm good at. And my basic needs have been met. Like what do we do once our basic needs are met? Is you know now we have a chance to start to think about things like you know blazing your own trail. Um, figuring out who you are, what you want, what you're good at, and what is the contribution that you want to make to the planet. I love that. I, I'm I'm I've always been uh, a, a blazer of my own trail. <laughs> I can't. I just can't conform. I'm. I don't. It's something. Something in me. Um, you know, in in uh, 2020, we were um, as a world faced with some uh, unbelievable challenges. And um, a friend of mine runs the Ohio for the state of Ohio runs the suicide prevention hotline, um, which is a state run organization. Mm -hmm. And um, he reached out to me and to talk about some marketing ideas to get their message out more to get people to call them. And um, we were talking and, and, and man, the suicide rates have just, they went just, I don't know what they are today, but I know at the time, mid 2020, they were skyrocketing. And um, if you know somebody reaching out to you and and they're they've they've lost all hope and they're at the end of their rope, they don't know which way to go. I mean, what do you say to? And I'm sure it, it varies, but what do you say to somebody that's that may be listening or watching? that they're at the end of their rope. They don't know which way to go. They, they're, they feel like life is, is, um, is over. And my, my, my dear friend and client, Dr. Laura, I call her, 
she's a she's a she i call her a doctor she's she's a nurse practitioner and she works with primarily geriatric patients um well only that's that's her that's her business but um what do you say to somebody that's lost all hope like how, how do you bring them back um I mean, it, it really is kind of case by case, but the, the most important thing becomes to establish some uh, element of rapport. Um, you, you gotta meet them where they're at and, and be willing to listen um, without judging uh, and, and with kind of compassion and understanding. And, and somewhere in there, you know, the, the desire is that you give them at least a little bit of that there is hope. Things can change. Change is possible. You're not alone. You're not the, the first person that's been here. And, and you know, if if you uh, kind of turn away from from the cliff that you're about to jump off of, um, and you give things a chance, there's there's every possibility that that things can change for you. But we can't do that while you're staring at the abyss. Um, yeah. And you know. Um, that that compassion, understanding, and and meeting them where they're at, establishing that rapport is is important. Yeah. So, have you have you written any books? I've got three books inside me that at some point will get written. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, what's 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 on the horizon for you? I mean, you've been a you've been a doctor. I I had no idea that an MD could be. A psychiatrist. So that's yeah. I learned something new today. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so you've you've been a psychiatrist, MD. You have 21 years in recovery. You have uh, sounds like just an amazing um, grounding and footing in life. What what's what's on the horizon for you? Well, I'm going to take you back like 12 years ago, real quickly. Um, yeah. So I'd had um, you know alcoholism and then after that I had depression and I had treatment and therapy and all sorts of things. But 12 years ago, I hit another bottom. It was uh, September, 2008. And I was completely burnt out. I was emotionally exhausted. I was like so cynical in my attitude and I no longer felt uh, effective. And my life was like a treadmill. There was like no end to it. And from the outside, uh, everything looked like I had a successful practice. Everything was good. Um, but I was so miserable. And the month before, August 2008, uh, Magdalena, my twin sister, had passed away uh, after a, a battle with a brain cancer. And it was striking to me, uh, literally one day staring at a picture of her as the sun was going down, it was dark in the room, and, and her picture she's just beaming and and that's how she lived her life at the end she was so gracious and so happy and, and so glad for what she had and we you know i'd ask her how are you doing and she'd say you know it's not so bad i have my kids i get to stay home with them now and my family visits me all the time and my friends visit it it's not so bad i've got it okay and there I was healthy with a, uh, a successful practice and, and uh, burnt out. And that was a moment where, you know, I, I do this line in the sand and I said, I'm gonna you know, commit to enjoying the ride no matter what. And over the last 12 years, I've had this long runway where I've committed to 
learning and growing and seeking out happiness and searching for happiness and wanting to give back uh, a much bigger future that, that opened for me was really, I want to have a bigger impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and how am I going to do that? And who am I? So I studied marketing and I, I had virtual mentors, you know, podcasts and shows like this where I, I learned and I was inspired. And after 12 years, um, I, I have a coaching practice now where I coach entrepreneurs who have been successful, but who are experiencing the other side of success. So when you work so hard to be successful, we get dinged up by the world. So folks who are having you know, their own struggles themselves personally or in their family with traumas, addictions, depression, anxieties, my coaching uh, is to help those people. And then I get to do podcasts and, and interviews like this, where I elevate that conversation um, I don't want depression, trauma, anxieties, addictions to be uh, cast in a, in, a, in a light that we don't look at. We need to elevate and highlight that. We need to be decreasing the stigma by talking, by taking, putting on my coaching hat and talking about this stuff that's personal and relevant and can save lives. Like when I said, when I turned into a psychiatrist, I couldn't save lives the way that other people did in medicine. This is how we save lives. We talk about the truth um, and that change is possible. There's hope and you don't have to be alone. Uh, I got, I love that. That's, that's, that's what I live my life for. I, I, I love that. Laura says, isn't it ironic? Psychiatry and ER doctors have the highest suicide rates themselves. Um, she says, thanks for giving so much of yourself. And then she asks a great question. What do you do for self-care? Do you have a psychiatrist? So I currently do not have a psychiatrist. Um, but I, I do a lot for my self-care. I, my, my life looks very much the same, like the hours that I work. Um, and the, uh, commitments that I've made, uh, I built in, uh, an exercise practice that that I stick to. Um, I meditate. I change my eating habits. I focus on my sleep. I've got to get, you know, uh, a certain amount of sleep. And then, you know, including things that I love doing every single day that I highlight. Like we look for things that we enjoy to come in and and neon, right? (laughs) But, But things like this, having a conversation with you, Ken, this is a highlight for me for my day. I get to count this as, you know, my 10% of the day that I'm like just having a blast and enjoying myself. So finding those things don't have to be a lot. Um, and it doesn't have to be neon. It's just a highlight and intentional doing things that you enjoy um, every single day. And then my, my commitment to, you know, growing my coaching practice and elevating the message, you know, getting better at speaking so that people can listen and I can get on platforms where, you know, we can spread a message that saves lives. I, I I love it, man. I love it. Billy Merritt, who's a good buddy of mine and, and a client wants you on his show. Just, just say yes. He's a good dude. He'll love him. Uh, Billy, it would be an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Billy's a good dude. So, so you, um, for anyone listening or watching right now that, um, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll 
I'll ask the question by telling you a very quick story. I, I had a, uh, my wife and I had just opened our first office. This was many years ago. Um, and, and I had one of my employees, new employees, big guy comes walking in my office and he goes, um, boss, there's a, there's a dude out in the parking lot looking in the windows of your SUV. And I'm like, well, tell him to get the hell out of here. What, why are you telling me? And you're bigger than I am. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, well, I would, but he has it blocked with his tow truck. He was there to repossess my car. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and I would, had been sober for a while, you know, and, and, and I'm like, oh, life just got really, really, really bad. I really felt like I had hit an emotional bottom. And, and, um, I can remember at that moment, like I've, I was out of hope and I had been to a thousand AA meetings and, but I had no hope in that moment. And I think that people get to the, those moments in life that feel like there's no hope in sight. Is, is there anything you can say to somebody that may be going through something? I mean, financial struggles are real. And, and people go through them. And, and I believe, I mean, finan financial problems are one of the top causes of divorce. And, and so what do you say to somebody that might be going through something like that and they don't have the hope? How do you bring, how do you bring them hope in this moment right now? Assuming you've got a, a direct connection, right? You, you have the opportunity to, to talk. Again, it, it's all about the relationship. You know, our, our connections with people are the places that, that can bring us back. So uh, if it's someone I don't know, you know, the very first thing is to, to establish rapport however I can. Tell me your story. You know, what's going on? What has happened? Um, and then we go from there. I remember uh, as a resident, so uh, I in Richmond. Richmond's on you know I ninety five, and we had a teaching hospital that had so much trauma and so much traffic. Um, it was a very very busy ER, and we would be called you know three five six times a night to, to admit someone who was depressed and suicidal or had overdosed, and you know the ER was dealing with you know, terrible accidents and they were just mad at patients who had intentionally overdosed. And the, the patients were mad that, you know, life had gone the way that it had for them. And we would be called in when we were tired and underslept and overworked to, to uh, work up and admit another person. And they would be combative and, and unpleasant to deal with. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the go-to strategy that I discovered was, you know, it was never about, you know, what happened that brought you to the point that you wanted to like die. You know, it was always about, you know, tell me about your childhood. Let's, let's start by me remembering you as a child, you remembering what happened. And if I could get someone to open up a little bit of their life and I could get a little bit of, you know, human compassion going for, you know, the, the child that had grown up with the traumas and the, the, the stuff yeah. that is hard to imagine, you know, I could put up with what, whatever they were and, and they could then uh, get some sense of, of safety and, and, and ability to, to kind of um, 
back off the the combativeness and let's work together to find out what we're going to do to get you better. So it's really just getting them to open up and and start talking and, and it's connection, yeah, right? connection, yeah. human connection. So that's my third pillar of happiness, right? So we got learning and growing. We never finished products. We got blaze your own trail. We have connection, and then we finish off with you know commit to enjoying the ride no matter what. Wow, I love that, man. I love that, Doctor Manuel Astruc. Did I say it all right? Be perfect. Great. So um, where, if, if anybody wanted to follow you on social media, where are, are you active on social media and where? Yeah, I am. So uh, every morning uh, on Facebook, I do a Facebook live. I do a three minute, um, two minutes, three minutes before I start seeing patients. So it's under Manuel Astruc Coaching on Facebook. And I talk all things, happiness, success, leadership. Um, and just a, a little, you know, moment of, of uh, morning musing for myself and, and for people who want to connect with me. That's that's so awesome. Yeah. Is there a website address? Yep. That- website is manuelastruck.com. I'm going to my contact information there. I'm going to pop that up on the screen. So M-A-N-U-E-L-A-S-T-R-U-C.com. Exactly. There it is. Scrolling across the bottom. Awesome. Everybody watching right now needs to get, I wish you had a book. I could tell everybody to go buy. <laughs> I, I, so I'll, I'll ping you when I get it written. I, I need yeah. to like, you know, find some white space. I'm transitioning from, you know, my medical practice to more of the coaching, but yeah, yeah there's, there's a couple of books that, that will be coming out. You should. Did you ever see the movie? What about Bob? Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite movies. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> Mine too. I, I, I write a book called baby steps. <laughs> yeah. Baby steps. Yeah. That's so funny. But I, I, I know I, I love your, I, I love your energy and I, I, I really, um, I've enjoyed talking with you and having you on the show. You're, you're, you just have a very, um, calm energy and and i really like that yeah thank you so much it's been a pleasure i've never done a show like this and it was a blast thank you so much for having me this is your first time doing a show like this i've done podcasts but we never get into like you know um the the thick of life right the messy parts of life never had to uh, go in never chose to go into that yeah well you know this is called breakthrough walls not tip that's right (laughs) <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. It was great. It was great. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, uh, people need to know that um, even doctors um, have have challenges. Man, we all we all go through it. Yeah. Right. Hundred percent. Thank you so much. Don't hang up on me, but I am going to end the live stream, and then I'd like to chat with you real quick afterwards. So. Manuel, thank you. Manuel, Manuel. I keep wanting to say Manuel. It's not. It's Manuel. Manuel, thank you so much for being on here today and being transparent and open and, and sharing your heart. It's It's been amazing. So everybody go over to ManuelAstruck.com and follow him. Follow him everywhere. Please. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. We'll see you guys later. Have a great day. Bye-bye.